This episode is brought to you by Anachronistic Scriveners. As any true author will tell you, you can't generate great works of literature on a cold, sterile word processing application. No, that silent tapping on a laptop keyboard will only reward you with the pale yellowing face from hours spent in front of the monitor's bluish sleep-sucking light. If you want the muses Calliope and Arado to speak through your laboring fingers, you need a writing tool that beats each letter into the paper like it's trying to bruise the words onto the parchment. Anachronistic Scriveners has bought the patent rights to all your favorite typewriter brands from the 1930s and 40s. Royal, Underwood, Smith Corona. Think how smart you'll feel carrying around these marvelous classic tools of the humanities in a 40-pound suitcase. They also offer the overly complicated models, like the 1906 Oliver, that lets you feel like you're staring into the maw of the creature from the movie Predator as you create your magnum opus, and gives your manuscript the sense that it's running through a gauntlet of steel paddles. Art is born of suffering, and you'll never create the great novel of your generation unless your fingers ache from forcing each key down with the commitment of a fist blow to the face. And when you're done, you can enjoy a satisfying, unfiltered cigarette, just like the great writers of... <coughs> and when you're ready to step up to the next level of authorial eloquence, order their Gutenberg Press. Nothing brings your characters to life like placing each letter by hand, backwards and upside down. And thank you, Anachronistic Scriveners, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolf story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. It's been a little while since we've had an author interview, so I'm happy to introduce Daryl Schweitzer. I think most people listening to this will know his name because his book, Mask of the Sorcerer, is one of the novels that's often called wolf-like, alongside Swanwick's Stations of the Tides and Lafferty and Crowley. But he's also important to genre overall because of his work as an interviewer, reviewer, critic, and bibliographer. Personally, I've found his book on Lord Dunsany, Pathways to Elfland, to be essential, especially since it's one of the few places you can learn about the man's work over his whole life and not just those famous short stories from his early career. And he and S.T. Joshi are two of the people most responsible for finding a lot, if not most, or all of Dunsany's uncollected stories and plays and making them available. He's also written on Lovecraft and Robert Howard. He's worked as an editor on Asimov's Amazing Stories and was the editor of Weird Tales for a while. But for Wolf Folk, I think the reason he comes up a lot is that he straddles a lot of genre lines, making fantasy and sci-fi weird in all kinds of wonderful ways. Um, also, a couple years ago, P.S. Press put out a two-volume retrospective of his short stories. Uh, the first volume called Mysteries of the Faceless King and the second called The Last Heretic. I know I at least mentioned on Facebook when I got them. I'm trying to get other people to do it, too. But they are wonderful, wonderful reading. 
So I have a bad habit that probably drives James crazy when we talk to people. Um, when I'm supposed to be interviewing, I just kind of jump in and start chatting and totally forget to do a formal opening. And since I was flying solo on this one, uh, James wasn't there to keep me in line. So here's Daryl Schweitzer. And links to any and everything we mention are in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, well, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. I've read your stuff for a long time and have always thought you were just a wonderful, Thank wonderful you. writer. So this starting this podcast has always been kind of been an excuse for us to just talk to other writers. Oh, we yeah. like whether it's whether they have a strong connection to Wolf or not. It's just something that yeah, well, is a fun thing. Well, don't keep about. these secrets. No, no. I, I tell, tell people all the time. Absolutely. No, I've gotten more people to read, um, uh, you know, Mass of the Sorcerer and and um, I single-handedly i know i did get two other people to buy that mysteries of the faceless king um the duo uh, so from the duo, um, yeah. yep so which is uh, that was really that, those are a couple of beautiful little books but no but i've been fascinated honestly i'll admit i found you i stumbled onto you originally even though i i'm sure i had seen your name because even back when i was a kid i was you know reading asimov's and analog and fantasy and sci-fi and everything so i'm sure your name was already familiar but yeah. then Probably. Well, from those, maybe you saw my name in Amazing and Fantastic, particularly in the uh, Eleanor Maver period. Yeah, about 1980. Yeah, so then, and but I really paid attention after um, I read your uh, book on Dunsany. And and it is Dunsany, right? Is it is that how we're Yes, rhymes with rainy. That's what I thought. I've told people that before. And I actually, I think it was you on a interview or a YouTube thing somewhere. And you corrected it. I'm like, okay, it must be. I have this on the best authority. <laughs> from from the family itself, right? Well, from from Sprague de Camp, who has it from the family itself. Mm. Well, I also did meet Joe Doyle, who is sort of the manager of the estate, and he he didn't correct me. There you go. Well, good. Well, yeah, I've told people that, and they don't believe. But me. Uh, you know, Sprague met uh, Lady Dunsany, the 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 writer's wife, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. his son. He did not meet Lord Dunsany. But and, and as the people used to say, Sprague liked to pronounce words, so he was always very precise about hmm. this. Very cool, very cool. But yeah, so I I read your book, and that kind of led me into some of your interviews and your nonfiction. Then I circled back to a lot of the fiction. Yes, you know there are, there are now there are three volumes of miscellaneous essays, mm-hmm. and there should be a, I, I'm due for another one. Oh, I'd love in it in my copious spare time. <laughs> uh, well, right now I seem to be so busy busy. Um, uh, compiling stuff that uh, uh, that I, I you know I'm not producing as much you know I'm I'm yeah. compiling two book, two books of interviews. Oh wow, that's great. Previously uncollected, including there will be a Gene Wolfe interview in there. Oh, wonderful! But it was the early one, the one I did in 1983. That's great. Um, I found a fan who's who can help me with the scanning, and so what we're doing is we're doing all of the interviews of mine that have never been reprinted. Oh, that's great. There are quite a few of them fell fell through the cracks between the Borgo Press series and the Wildside Press series, and particularly the ones that predated my owning a computer. Mm, Yeah, I can see that. Who else is in there? There's a James Morrow. There's Mm -hmm. um, Fred Saberhagen, C.J. Cherry, back when she was a new writer. Uh, (laughs) John Varley, back when he was a new writer. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, we are talking about interviews that are as old as 1976. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a Michael Moorcock from the 70s. See, that's uh, the thing. from the, the ones from the older period, 
that would well, catch a lot of people's attention. I well, think, as is... I pointed out, it's, it's sort of like when you, if you got to interview Homer right after he's done with the Iliad and he's thinking about a sequel. Oh, yeah. You know, this is not reportage. It's somewhere between archaeology and oral history. Yeah. You know, you yeah. want to know what he was thinking then. And, oh, there's a very good good long interview with Tom Dish in there. Oh, that's pretty good. Please, you get that one re- re- reprinted. And there are actually more of them than I realized even existed. That's great. Yeah. So they're going to be two of those, and and I'm doing a, uh, a best of weird tales uh, anthology series for Centipede mm-hmm. Press. Are you familiar with Centipede Press books? Yeah, yeah, I. You know, you know the big black things the size of suitcases. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Well, three volumes: one for the 20s, one for the 30s, <laughs> ones on the 40s and 50s. Of course, no one will be able to afford them. Well, even I wouldn't be able to afford them if I weren't for them. Oh yeah. No, I know what they're, you mean. they're enormous. Uh, the twenties volume is in proof and should be out soon. There should be another anthology out from PS Publishing soon, called Shadows Out of Time. Uh, it is my ambition to one day become so famous that I can do an anthology that isn't about Lovecraft. Uh, <laughs> and um, Hippocampus Press is going to do a another volume of my Lovecraftian fiction. If you're familiar with Waiting Strange Gods, it's sort of a sequel mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. And Priya Press in Australia, Danny Lovecraft's uh, outfit, is doing a book of my poetry. Oh, that's fun. Not the silly stuff, but the real stuff. The third such volume to exist. Um, and and then, just to make life interesting, John Betancourt has asked me to help him continue the, you know, he did a Best of Weird Tales 1923 so we're not well we're going to at least go as far as the public domain extends so we can do 24 25 and 26 right now <laughs> wait wait another year and you can do 27 um and so right now i'm reading i'm reading all of 1924 weird tales much more closely than i did before what's are there surprises or is there a lot of it that's awful a lot of it's really awful it's a very <laughs> bad year for weird tales that was the year they went bankrupt and reorganized mm. So there, there are, you know, it's January, January, February, March, April. Then there's a May, June, July anniversary issue, and then November and December, which are the first two Farnsworth Wright issues, and they're somewhat better. Uh, we, well, we couldn't candidly call it the least bad of Weird Tales, 1924. <laughs> the 1924, 25, 26 volumes will be, will be Wildside Press cheap paperbacks. The, the ones by the decade with incredible amounts of artwork and, and every conceivable bell and whistle you can imagine, those mm-hmm. will be centipede prints. Gotcha. Oh, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one of the great perks of uh, doing inter- having done all these interviews over the years is that Centipede Press frequently reprints them in their volumes. And do you get a cut for that? <laughs> yeah, I get a, well, I get, not only do they pay me for it, but I get copies of the books, which I could otherwise oh, never afford. Which may be like, worth, worth more than what they're paying you sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in their, I, for example, I'm in their edition of uh, Silverberg's Dying Inside that's coming out soon. Gotcha. Very cool. And such things as their their edition of, of, of uh, Evangeline Walton's Witch House and quite a few others. Oh, so. wow. Yeah, I built up a, a, a collection of very expensive doorstops. <laughs> that's awesome. Can I ask a crass question, I guess? Or not too yeah, crass. I mean, but do you get paid for the interviews with the magazines? Like when you were doing these yeah. originally, you would? Yes. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, you would get usually the same rate you'd get for anything else from a magazine. And then sometimes you could sell them abroad. They were, in fact, a wonderful... I could ride my own coattails wonderfully with these. <laughs> Um, it got me into a lot of places where I otherwise wouldn't have gotten with fiction immediately. 
And then I started getting, particularly after I did an interview with Isaac Asimov, I started getting all these queries from foreign magazines. Yeah. And I made a bunch of foreign connections. And so I suddenly I had lots of interviews being published in Dutch and Italian and German. And then I would ask those guys, hey, would you like to see a story? And so the result is the first time my name was ever on the cover of a magazine for a piece of fiction was in Dutch. Huh. About 1979. And it said, Frederick Pohl, H.G. Wells, Daryl Schweitzer. <laughs> and and uh, that I was not equal to the other two. Uh, well, I, I wasn't going to disillusion them. Uh, there was a time when I could um, fly to a convention, do a handful of interviews, and pay for the entire trip. That's great. It was great. Um, I mean, I remember I went to, when I went to the World Fantasy Con in Seattle in what was about 1989, I came back with a long interview with Ursula Le Guin, another one with Marion Zimmer Bradley, and another one with Dan Simmons. Hmm. And that paid for the entire trip, airfare, hotel, everything. And now the next question is, did you share any of that cut with the subject of the interview? Or uh, No, you do. the customarily one doesn't. Yeah, I, would, uh, I was wondering. Custom, yeah. yeah, the custom of the trade, at least the custom of the trade as I've established it, <laughs> since I've done probably more interviews than anybody else, <laughs> is that the uh, interview is the literary property of the interviewer, mm -hmm. but the interviewee has a sort of blanket lease from me to use it. Mm. Okay. So like, for example, you'll find in the Julian Mays, the Pliocene Companion, there's an interview with Julian May by me. All I asked you to do is send me a copy. Yeah. Or more recently in one of, one of Chip Delaney's nonfiction books, there was an interview with me uh, from 1975. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't require anybody to pay me. Yeah. I just said, send, yeah. send me a copy. And, and meanwhile, I'm going to use that interview in my book, too. I mean, that's smart. <laughs> if you can get in, yeah. and, oh, yeah. and it's a way to get to the top of the slush pile, if nothing else. I mean, it is, they, yes. they know who you are. Uh, Harlan Ellison used to insist on being paid to be interviewed. That that fits with this the character, minute? yeah. Yeah, and this is probably one of the reasons why I never interviewed him. <laughs> um, and then there are, there are some people who are just too famous to interview Sure. Well, like, for example, I, I once asked Frank Herbert, and he said no. Uh, hmm. That's a shame. I'm glad I, I got to Neil Gaiman before he was too famous. Interesting that when I interviewed uh, Gaiman, we didn't talk about comics. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't actually know much about um, about Sandman at the time. We, we ended up talking about Lafferty and Wolf and, you know, writing and, and so on. And, and Hope Mirrorlees. He's very big on Hope Mirrorlees. Maybe we should get on to our topic. Yeah, we, that's fine. No, this is honestly, this is like I said, the, this is an excuse to to pick your brain about yeah, other sure. things and find out what you're doing. So, well, go ahead. I have something in there. Well, good. Well, let's talk about you're talking about interviews. So, about your interview with Wolf. Maybe that's a good place to to start. How did you line up to get him? Did he did he want to? Well, was he was very or, or when was it? I forget. Well, the better known interview with Wolf, the one that's in speaking of the fantastic. Two, and yeah. was published in the first Terminus show Weird Tales, must have been done considering that Weird Tale that Weird Tales was published about. We had it for the World Fantasy Con in 1987, which would have been you know around Halloween of 1987. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't. But most of my my interviews are done at conventions, and I cannot remember necessarily which one, mm -hmm. unless I says so at the end. In the interview, must have been done in 1987. Okay. Or maybe late 86. 
uh, well, most writers are very approachable. You just ask them to find some time, you know, sit down with them at a convention. Most of these interviews are done at conventions. Mm-hmm. So there's really nothing, nothing unusual about the circumstances, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't interview him while we were both climbing Mount Everest or something. <laughs> and he was very, you know, he's very was very approachable and very accessible. Uh, you know, I have a uh, I have a pretty good record for that. I'm one of the few people who ever interviewed R.A. Lafferty. I got him sober. <laughs> uh, and um, anyway, it was and I did another interview with with Wolf that was published in Fantasy Review around 1982 or 1983. I'm it's going to take some excavation in my garage to find my run of fantasy review and find that interview. Uh, I don't remember what it was about, but the other one, <laughs> the other one, which I just glanced through before we did this was you, you could also tell you can date it very precise, pretty precisely because the book of the new sun has come out and we're talking about that. And the earth of the new sun has not come out yet, but it, it's done. Okay. Gotcha. And so you, you can you can date it very precisely that way. And so we were we were largely talking about the new Sun books, and we were talking about uh, about the the latter the first two Latro books. Well, that's an interesting time too, because I know at least so the story goes is that Earth of the New Sun came about because David Hartwell wanted him to do something of a kind of explanation or coda, yeah. um, and then it turned into Earth of the New Sun. So people yeah, always same, wonder same. whether it's was really Wolf's desire to write that book or not well i think he and then of course you have the entire long sun so they just just keep oh, yeah. going well yeah. remember he remember he said that the um he originally said that the entire book of the new sun was intended to be a novella for orbit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and things and he also said that um that they would have been even longer if he hadn't gone through to uh take things out <laughs> the the editorial process for him was to go through the four volumes of the book of the new sun and take stuff out <laughs> which is probably just as you know just as well if, if something like that becomes over, overburdened with too much detail you can lose the main thread right right and uh well we all know gene was a consummate craftsman so he and, and a good deal of the craft of writing is knowing what to leave out and so he was very good at that I've often wondered if he wrote his stories sort of explaining everything and then part of the wolf magic is going in and taking out just enough to All the make a wonderful mood <laughs> and, a, and a wonderful yeah. set of questions. Well, you know, the, this raises a serious issue of why Gene Wolfe will never be a bestseller, and he won't. And mm-hmm. I think we all know that. Yeah. And the reason is that for many readers, his bo- books are very difficult. I was in a book discussion, and I put them up to this, uh, I, a, a Philadelphia Science Fiction Society book discussion did uh, Gene Wolfe's piece. Mm. No one understood it. <laughs> Most of them did not realize it was a ghost story. Mm-hmm. Didn't think it had any fantastic content at all. Even though there is a bit in there in, in piece where somebody from the future, basically the, the, somebody projects his voice into his childhood self. I believe, the, I believe it, yeah. what I think happened was he, yeah, the protagonist who was, who was in his 60s before he was dead projected his voice, his 60-year-old voice, into his childhood self. So odd things do happen in that book. Oh, yeah. Yep. But most people don't understand it. And um, I can also tell you that the deep, dark secret I know as a, uh, as a bookseller, which is, you know, one of my other bad habits, <laughs> is that aside from the book of the new new son wolf doesn't really sell he he's yeah. a 
Yeah, he's a writer like Lafferty or Dave or Avram Davidson who appeals to, well, we'll say an elite. We'll admit it. <laughs> uh, well, hey, virtually all readers are elite, elites anyway. I mean, if you if you think about it, um, if we have a population of three hundred fifty million, and a book is oh, success, yeah. yeah, and and a book like that might sell ten thousand copies in hardcover, and that's a success. Right. What percentage of the population are we reaching? So we're all a bunch of mandarins writing, you know, fine pens for other mandarins, and let's just admit it. Um, <laughs> but no, you're right, and we see stuff on Twitter all the time of people saying, you know, I've read sci-fi my whole life, but I've never quite cracked a Gene Wolfe novel. So yeah, once you start getting fractions of fractions of fractions of the population, you know, part of the sci-fi group, and then there's the part who wouldn't want to read Wolfe. Well, and... maybe the Lord of the Rings is mass culture, but I think it's mostly because of the movies. Yeah, yeah. before the movies, it was it was definitely. It was still something you had to actually have read books. You know, uh, what a concept. And and so we're, we're unashamedly elitist in that we write for people who read. And, uh, and we write kind of specialized people who read. And then he is something of an acquired taste because a lot of the times when you're reading, you're, like you said, you're not going to necessarily know exactly what's happening. Some people argue that his books are designed to be reread. That is the name of our show is Rereading Wolf. <laughs> so, Wolf. Okay. Yep, uh, yep, well, he's yep. also, he's a writer like, he's a writer like uh, David Lindsay, you know, the author of A Voyage to Arcturus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that every year from now to the end of time, somebody's going to read these books and be absolutely thrilled. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people, but somebody will. And he will, the reason he probably won't ever be forgotten is precisely because he is unique and he, he basically because you can't replace him with somebody else in the next generation. Yeah. If you want Wolf, you got to read Wolf. There's, there is no substitute. Um, this is why, uh, well, frankly, this is this, you see this in literature a lot. This is why all the Tolkien imitations are going to fade because they can be replaced by other token imitations mm -hmm. and all the Robert E. Howard imitations are going to fade already have. Do you remember those? Oh yeah. Robert Jordan stuff. And well, I mean, no, I'm thinking ones. about John Jakes and Lynn Carter. Oh, and, yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, what, what we used to call for jockstrap books, the gore novels that I used to see all <laughs> well, over. They're, 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 they're not, I wouldn't blame Howard on those. Uh, they're a specialized, uh, they're kind of, they're a specialized perversion. Oh. Uh, they, 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 um, <laughs> Uh, have have their own appeal, let us say. And um, but uh, basically, if somebody else can imitate it, then somebody else can imitate that imitator. Mm -hmm. So, say Edgar Rice Burroughs is still read, but his imitator Otis Adelbert Klein is, isn't read, and Lynn Carter imitating Burroughs isn't read because the next time they need Burroughs imitators, somebody else is going to do it. Very likely, Will Murray. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, you know, basically, imitators can be replaced. The um, the originals cannot. And you see this over and over again, the way that Ryder Haggard's she, uh, you know, begat thousands of imitations. Yeah. You know, it was a whole genre, publishing. They didn't put labels and spines in those days, but, you know, lost world novels were a whole genre of publishing as distinct as science fiction. And they're all gone. You know, like there are about five or six gothic novels that anybody reads. And I don't know how many imitations of Dracula there are, but they're all gone. And the originals are still there because they provide that, that special something. So, Wolf, we, we suggest, provides that special something. Yeah. Okay. But do you remember anything else from that interview that was that stood out or that surprised you? Well, you should. Otherwise, you should rush out and get a copy of 
of Speaking of the Fantastic Two by Daryl Schweitzer. It's available from Wildside Press or directly from me on eBay. Oh, we'll put links up. Don't worry. We will absolutely have links. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't I don't know. I don't actually. Yeah, I don't remember where we were when we did this. So I don't actually remember. We, we got, I'm just looking through it. I have it right in front of me. We're getting sort of very erudite and classical. <laughs> and he's rather pleased with me that that I recognize that the Commonwealth is based on Byzantium, not medieval Europe. And uh, that occurred to me because, because the Commonwealth is clearly in decline, but it's such a slow decline. As Gene pointed out, you know, your grand, great, great grandchildren will still be living in it. <laughs> you know, if, if you were, if you were living in Byzantium and in say the year 900, you would recognize that things are kind of winding that maybe, but your great, great grandchildren are still going to be living in Byzantium. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be upset quickly. Well, Gene was a, was a very, well, he was very vastly learned about history and religion and mythology. I, I, one thing that impressed me was that when he said that he actually had somebody, he took lessons in classical Greek in order to um, to write the, the Latro books. Mm. He wanted to know how they thought. And uh, he therefore he learned he learned classical Greek. He wanted to like he for example he discovered they didn't really have the same concept of time that we do, and that you know he was writing about a time when the sundial was a new thing, and therefore they didn't think in terms of hours or certainly not in minutes. It was sort of like breakfast time and you know midday and that kind of yeah. stuff. So he wanted to get the the sort of rhythms of the, that. Well, that's what can I say? That's integrity. This is why when sometimes you couldn't tell if Gene was. Um, playing head games with you. The one, the one that actually did startle me once, I don't remember in what context it came up, but I mentioned the donation of Constantine. And he professed to have never heard of it and not know what that is. Now, you know, the donation of Constantine was a famous medieval forgery that started, according to legend, Constantine had, uh, had leprosy and the Pope cured him and therefore he de donated central Italy to the Pope. Uh, this is not true. But it took till about 1500 before anybody figured out this document was a fake. Hmm. Now, how could somebody as learned as Gene Wolfe, uh, who also is a specialized in, in Catholic history, not know that? So was he screwing with me? Uh, um, had he sort of suddenly <laughs> taken offense that I had mentioned it? I don't know. Um, yeah, in reality, the donation of Pepin was quite real. You know, basically, was it Charlemagne's father or grandfather? I forget which gave the Pope Central Italy, but Constantine yeah. wasn't giving away anything. We've often <laughs> um, wondered about that because I, um, Joan Gordon, who wrote a book on on Wolf um, a while back and and has done some other criticism, but she she talks about him as a kind of autodidact that he was very well learned in very particular sort of slices of sections um but it didn't necessarily follow the the kind of that you might think of about like an academic of getting the whole spread of everything that might come with something and so that that it did seem like there were certain areas where he was incredibly focused but might not have just had the a, a fuller context and i don't know i don't I mean obviously i don't know but um but i do like the idea that maybe he was <laughs> maybe he was pulling with me on. i think he may yeah. have been been other times when some interviews where it does seem like he's yeah he will definitely play coy about certain things yeah because that that's that's for for, for catholic history or medieval catholic history that's pretty basic uh, 
And he was, you know, he was always citing and naming his characters after obscure saints. Yeah. You know, uh, like, well, I'm not, but you know, what was it that Michael Andre, what's his name? Bruce, he is, yeah. Uh, I was never sure how to pronounce that. Uh, he has, you know, published these, you know, this sort of, uh, this reference, Gene Wolfe reference book. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. Lexicon Earthus. Yeah. And um, it, it's full of all these citations of, uh, of uh, various saints, this and that, you know. So if there's somebody named Thecla in one of the, one of the, yeah, there is somebody named Thecla in the, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But which Thecla are we talking about? There are a couple right. of saints by that <laughs> name and there are, a couple of sisters of Byzantine empresses, and I, th- I think the general rule—the general rule for Wolf—is that he's a little more focused on antiquity than than the later Middle Ages. I think that's right, I mean, and not just the Latro books, but it does seem like what the, the kinds yeah. of references he makes definitely prefer things that are much more on the classical end. Yeah, like for example, there's one case where I know that I'm actually cited in Lexicon Earthus where, um, for the name Hormistas. Which I commented, I commented was a Persian name, and the famous Hermistos was the pretender that Julian the Apostate tried to put on the throne, and it, all it says is Gene Wolfe hasn't commented on this. So <laughs> I bet you uh, I got the wrong Hermistos, because probably the one he has in mind came out of Herodotus, mm. whereas you know this is for you know Julian the Apostate is fourth century A.D., and as somebody who's mentioned in you know Ammianus Marcellinus. And I don't think that was the period that Gene was as much interested in. And uh, certainly with his preoccupation with the, uh, the well, the latter books, uh, you know, owe a great deal to Herodotus. Yeah. And, and of course, once he had learned classical Greek, you know, who knows what he read? Well, I also want to talk about your books, if you don't mind. So we've, we've done right. our due diligence and talked about Wolf. <laughs> but uh, okay. but the one thing I wanted to, to sort of just tell you, I think I told you this in email too, but when people ask for other recommendations of things that are like Wolf. Um, You're one of the names that often comes up along with like John Crowley and Lafferty, Um, but particularly your Sakenra books. Am I pronouncing it right? Sakenra? I think so. It turns out the name is misspelled. It's an, it's an Egyptian name that was written. It should actually be Sakenare. I left an E out somehow. And originally it was a name that I just sort of, I just, you know, I, I, was once hired by Tor Books to write a Conan novel, which they decided not to publish. And um, it was um, set in Stygia, which is Howard's uh, Egypt. Mm-hmm. And there was somebody named Sikenri in there, and I spelled it wrong there, too. And uh, <laughs> I just reused the name. The person in the Conan book is no relation. Um, and that's where the Sikenri story started, right? Like, they were from all the the sort of fantastic Egypt that you were talking about, that's where the sorcerer's world comes from. Is that right? They're a rebound from a failed Conan book. <laughs> uh, really? They, you know, here, okay, here, so here's the story. Well, I, I wrote an essay about this called My Career as a Hack Writer. I've never been a very successful hack writer. <laughs> uh, the, the, two, the two big jobs I ever did uh, that were, in essence, right for hire uh, commission things were both disasters. Um, <laughs> the DeCamps in the middle 80s, commissioned me to write a Conan novel for Tor. And, um, well, so I got the, I signed and I started writing and, and I got the first third of the advance. And then I turned the book in and I got the second third of the advance. And then Robert Jordan took over as uh, pretty much a series editor and he asked for revisions and I made them. 
And then I mentioned to Catherine, oh, I've made the revisions. And so, and then she, Catherine DeCamp we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, she apparently put in for me to be paid the third third of the advance. And then Tor decided not to publish the book. Mm. Well, my conscience is clear. If they really wanted to kill this project, they could, should have killed it much sooner. They're not getting their money back. And for about every 10 years thereafter, uh, somebody from, I would mention this to somebody from Tor, and they'd say, oh, I never knew this existed. And then they would ask to see it, and then they would forget about it again. Uh, we've been through this cycle several times. But anyway. They, they own a book now. Why not put a Conan name on it? They do own a book. Yeah. They own a book. They could publish it anytime they like. But it was set in Stygia, and, and with a large sequence in the Stygian underworld, in the land of the dead, which all of which is my invention. Howard does not mention any of that. Mm. So with the, with the serial numbers filed off and so on, I mean, both of us can do fake Egypt. Um, And I don't think there were any crocodile-headed persons in it. (laughs) Um, I haven't read this novel in a long time, actually. But uh, anyway, uh, on the rebound, I proceeded to write the book, which had as little to do with that Conan book as possible, and was probably the book I was really trying to write. Mm -hmm. Because uh, basically, my, my Conan novel was not a very good Robert Jordan pastiche. Um, and uh, they might even have been right not to publish it because it might not have pleased the audience they had intended. Mm-hmm. When you take all the restraints off, and, and I don't need a barbarian character, you notice there's a throwaway barbarian in The Mask of the Sorcerer? Uh-huh. For I was going to ask page, about that one. Yep. Comes yep. in through the window, about <laughs> one page, and they just chuck him away. Yep. Uh, but uh, I guess that's as close as that book comes to having an in-joke in it. But um, basically, once all the restraints are off, and I don't have to pretend I'm being Robert E. Howard, and I don't have to write about Conan. Then, then I just you know let it flow. And I originally, well, the first first four chapters were published in Weird Tales as a novella, mm-hmm. which was a World Fantasy Award finalist. And the difference between the novella version and the uh, the novel version is a it's a couple of sentences. There's a couple of sentences were altered just just enough to give it to pretend it had some kind of conclusion so that the magazine. <laughs> So that the magazine appearance wouldn't appear to be a, uh, wouldn't look like first installment of a serial. Gotcha. And so it's got a sort of, it's got a very, very slight ending. Um, the, and then this version has been, was reprinted in the Mammoth Book of Sorcerer's Tales, edited by Mike Ashley, which is one place you can find it. But um, then I thought I was going to write basically three such novellas and do a fix-up book, which would be, you know, like about 90,000 words long and so on. But it just that just didn't work out. I, you know, I never managed to find the ending of the second novella and just kept going. And the result was it was a longer book than I thought and uh, did not have that fix-up tripartite structure after all. So well, the way you read it now, it almost comes to an end at the end of Chapter 4 and then it doesn't. Yeah, and maybe that explains one reason why. I mean, it's not quite picaresque, but it does have, especially once he goes to the afterworld early on, you get the sense that you're in a place where you know we're we're not just following this through line story. We're we're in a world where things can come out of the blue after us, and and it's that's part of the wonderful I feel like mood of it that that I think is probably why a bunch of wolf fans like it too, is because there's, you start to get a sense of sort of the rules of this world, but the way they come at you is always unexpected. Well, there is, there is sort of a plot that does conclude it. It's all about Sikhenry not becoming a monster. It's basically mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a, actually, it's a character story. It's about, 
Um, it's about how to, how does he remain some, in, you know, considering he's got like 500 ghosts in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does he not become a monster when most of them are? That's what this is really about. I mean, that's how it yeah, concludes. Yeah. But, um, and of course there are sort of random things like when he meets the, uh, you know, the, the exiled queen and her daughter who've been thrown overboard with their luggage and one zombie. Uh, <laughs> um, random things do happen like that. But anyway, I mean, that's, that's where the rest of the book comes together at that point. Um, I just suspect, well, what, what, what I can also say about, about the wolf influence, steal from the best, at least it shows you have taste. <laughs> um, I think what probably what, what they're, they're picking up on is that this, it, it's a, that same kind of deeply personal confessional first person narration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Only probably my narrators are more reliable, except when somebody takes over his head. And there are a couple of points where somebody took out, you remember somebody takes over briefly. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, it's, um, it's the same kind of narrative as Wolf would use, only a lot easier and a lot simpler. And uh, certainly I'm, not, no, I'm no linguist, so you know, probably linguistically it's a lot simpler. I feel like we also know what Sakenri is going through a little bit more than sometimes I think people know what Severian is going through. Well, Severian is also, as people point out, Severian has an agenda sometimes or he doesn't want to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, have you read the second Zakenry book? Uh, yes. Okay, well, you know, it's there. The reason all those stories are in the third person is that um, I figured that that after a couple of thousand years, certainly the last story takes place about 3,000 years after the others, mm-hmm. um, is that Zakenry's mind would be too weird. <laughs> and I could not really realistically i basically in in the mask of the sorcerer he really is still a kid these -hmm. things are happening to him but he chronologically has not lived very long but after he has lived several with several a couple thousand years of this his mind would probably be too weird and i would not be able to really be able to reproduce the way he thinks therefore all of the later stories are about people who met him great way to do it too it's an excellent piece of evasion, you know, to, to sidestep the, the, the core problem where you can't do it. You know, think of, uh, uh, say, Tom Dish's uh, camp concentration, where mm-hmm. the character is not only a genius but goes insane. And he's got to write this as a diary. Uh, I'm not sure he brought it up. He tried, he did, he probably got as close as anybody can to writing the diary of a mad genius, but um, maybe I wasn't that ambitious. And also, what is easy? Well, I'm probably a little too addicted to first person, but what is for me at least is a very easy mode of um, of narration is basically an adult viewpoint looking back on childhood, with the story being uh, uh, the story in essence being this is how I became who I am, mm-hmm. and I've written rather a lot of those. And to some some extent, you have to actually sort of stop and not write one that is like your previous one. <laughs> You know, you know this, if you're particularly if you're a short, prolific short story writer, this is an actual problem. When you uh, you know assemble collections, you discover you have two stories that have exactly the same structure or something. <laughs> you know, I have I have temporarily sworn off the old school chum story. <laughs> you have probably read some of those. I think I'm, I'm looking at Mysteries of Faceless King and and think mm, I may recognize. There are some in there, yeah. like for instance, particularly one of the Secret Masters. Is that in there? I don't remember. But basically, it's the story about 
somebody when they were younger fell under the influence, usually in college, fell under the influence of a much stronger personality who uh, then proceeded to um, show them something very weird. Mm-hmm. Then they went back to normal life and tried to be normal. And then the, the weird, then the, the other person came back. The old school chum came back and, and reinserted the weirdness into the protagonist's life. This is a perfectly valid plot, plot and themes, thematic structure, as long as you don't do it too often. <laughs> it seems like it has Lovecraftian kinds of things, but Lovecraft's usually, I guess he's usually more doing the weirdness has now taken over and this is my last will yeah. and testament. But, yeah. yeah. Well, Lovecraft didn't actually regard characters very important. Yeah. It's sort of an aesthetic statement with him. It wasn't that he couldn't characterize because in uh, something like the case of Charles Dexter Ward, you see he certainly can. Mm-hmm. But he did not regard individuals and their personal relationships as to be very important. Of course, you can you can generate a good deal of, of you know plot and interest that way. Yes, I am. I'm left thinking um, if, if Guillermo del Toro ever successfully gets his movie of At the Mountains of Madness made, he's going to have to add some plot. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Thank you. Otherwise, we're yeah. going to spend entirely too much time looking at wall reliefs. Yeah. Yeah. And strange hexagonal boxes all over the place. And he's going to have to have the characters interact with each other more, which is why I actually have Lovecraft stories. This is why I think that the case of Charles Dexter Ward is the most filmable. And mm. I, I'm still waiting for somebody to do it right. <laughs> well, that's that makes me want to ask then about Dunsany, because as okay. I said before, you know, you have written a ton about Dunsany. Um, and, and I feel well, like some anyway. some really, well, I'll say a lot, um, a lot of good insight into sort of how he creates the moods that he does, but he's someone else who didn't necessarily write characters so much. It was more, would you say that he wrote worlds or he wrote? It depends on which Dunsany you're talking about. You know, basically uh, he was capable of writing character. You read read something like the curse of the wise woman Mm -hmm. and he's fully capable of being a, you know, a very good conventional, relatively conventional novelist. But you're talking about his early short fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These are, you know, stuff like the gods of Bagana, you know, these are almost like lyric poetry. He's writing purely for aesthetic effect and for mood. And he's not really creating worlds in the detailed sort of almost pedantic way that Tolkien does. You know, the, the, the detail isn't there. He's just creating them as, as flights of fancy, um, which is why, uh, he, why he's so difficult to uh, imitate. Although I will say, one of the reasons why I appreciate you as a writer is I feel like there are some stories you've done that are the closest to Dunsany imitation that I've ever seen. And that's, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> but It um, might be that, it might be that, um, well, I, I certainly have learned a great deal from, again, steal from the best, you have taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but don't just do that. Right. right. Um, the thing is, I have more interest in, when I'm writing that kind of story, I have much more interest in character than he does. Uh, look at a story like um, uh, The Mysteries of the Faceless King, for example. That has elements of that you could say are Dunsanian, but it also has quite a lot of elements that aren't. Uh, basically, once you, once you have um, uh, you know, absorbed an influence, you start using it for your own purposes. Or... Um, uh, something like the Sorcerer of Aragdu is another good example. The one I'm thinking of is, oh shoot, it's 
the king's wager and i've forgotten the king's name uh, king of orion's wager there you go yeah, yeah yeah that one in particular to me i remember when i read it immediately felt like i finally read somebody who could capture what's fascinating about Dunsany. and also knows how to steal from borges it's <laughs> probably why i liked it too <laughs> So how did how did you get to write so much? Um, would you call it criticism? I mean, you know, your Dunsany book is it, it, it's nonfiction. It's not necessarily reviews. It's sort of like a and it's not. It's just a critical like a survey. It's yeah. It's frankly pretty shallow. I've I've been of the impression, the opinion, I've the concerted opinion that one should not do this under the age of thirty, but I did. Um, <laughs> But the, fortunately, this book can, you know, you realize I also wrote books at that, about the same age. I wrote books about Robert E. Howard and Lord, uh, Robert E. Howard and, and H.P. Lovecraft mm -hmm. for, for Borgo Press. And neither of these is very good. Uh, the Dunsany one still has some virtue, largely because it involved, it entailed original research. You, you can sort of ignore some of the shallow opinions in it, but there's some real research in there. This is the first attempt by anybody to, um, uh, to survey the entire territory. So it's just like I'm the first explorer they sent to an Ireland, and I took some photos, and they weren't very good photos, but they're the first ones we've got. Well, S.G. Joshi's book about Dunsany, I would, would point out, it's, I think it is more profound than mine, and better researched and more scholarly, but it's also hideously expensive. So, <laughs> I, well, basically, I, shameless plug, if you, you can, mine is at least cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've still got boxes of them. Because George Sithers never really sold very many copies of that book. He, he he was getting old and sort of slowing down and not doing as much promotion as he used to. And uh, also getting behind in his bookkeeping, I'll admit. So I actually, frankly, never received royalties on that book. Oh, no. Well, but I ended up I ended up in possession of the entire print run. So, <laughs> yeah, I got paid. I got paid, but I'm, I'm going to probably be selling it for the rest of my life and then some. I'll line my tomb with them. <laughs> well, let's see if we can help you. I'll. I know we got people who follow us who are big into Dunsany, so maybe we can get. A yeah, you look look, up, look it up on eBay if nothing else. It's, it's I have it listed there. Ten dollars a copy. Well, you mentioned Joshi too. You've written. You wrote a book with him on Lovecraft. Is that right? Well, no, I wrote. Or, I he and I compiled a bibliography. Oh, okay. Of Dunsany, and uh, it's been through two editions from Scarecrow Press, and. Um, and also, of late, Martin Anderson has been involved in, with some of the notes. I, but but um, basically, what what happened was that, that I had been interested in Dunsany since I was in college and um, had used what I could at the college library to go through periodicals and find stray Dunsany. That is also how the book The Ghost of the Heaviside Layer happened. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there was one point which I naively thought I had found all of his uncollected stories. But you'll notice that in the introduction, I very carefully left the wind, the door open for there might be a couple more. And then it turns out there are like 150 more. <laughs> uh, but of course, Joshi and, and the Swedish scholar Martin Anderson have been have been to Dunsany Castle and have been through all the papers and uh, they, they, they found vast amounts of more stuff. But, you know, basically my position as a uh, as a Dunsany scholar quote unquote is that I'm the person who scratched the surface uh, so basically what, what we did was we by the time you know I was done I had a series of notes and I had that little table in the back of perfor known performances of the plays which I compiled largely by 
cribbing it out of Mark Amory's biography of Dunsany. Uh, so Joshi and I built on that. One time, the two of us, he stayed over at my house once. This must have been, uh, well, longer ago than I care to admit. Uh, <laughs> well, it was back in the old days when you could walk into a college library and they let you into the stacks. We went into the library. Uh, I guess it must have been the early 80s uh, or somewhere around then. Somewhere, anyways, I think sometime in the 1980s, S.T. Joshi and I went into the library of the uh, University of Pennsylvania, which ha has a magnificent periodical section. And says, we didn't, the way they run the libraries nowadays, you'd have to ask for each volume, they'd bring it mm -hmm. to you. We had no idea what we were looking for. Fortunately, we were allowed to roam in the periodical stacks. And so we would just pull down a, a bound volume of a magazine saying, oh, look, this looks promising. You know, yeah. Queen's Quarterly, what's that? And it turns out to be a British magazine from the early 50s, and it had five or six Dunsany items in it. That's great. Yeah. And we we went through and Xeroxed like crazy and found all sorts of stuff that way. And um, and so before you know it, well, Joshi, Joshi is much more the scholar than I am. But uh, but again, I started it. And and we I continued to keep notes about stray anthologization appearances and so yeah. on. Uh, I don't know if there'll ever be a third edition. There may be there can be a supplemental p pamphlet someday of, of all, all the stuff that isn't in the second edition. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's essential work because Dunsany's hard to find <laughs> all those pieces before you did that work. Well, before, well the, the real breakthrough was when Joshi, I have to admit, Joshi did about three quarters of the work. Um, he got a key to all of the anonymous stuff in Punch. Oh. And that yeah. that opened up a lot. We suddenly, stories like rewarding the fairies and so on were now identified <laughs> for the first time. You know, I had the ones I had found had his name on them, and I mostly found them by looking through old magazines. And um, when I when I was a kid, my family went to Maine every summer, and and we spent a good deal of time in used bookstores. And so I sort of grew up with old periodicals. Yeah, and uh, was always knew. I really, you know, I was the kind of person who would find something in a nineteen nineteen issue of Atlantic or something, <laughs> uh, and I would keep those. You know, so that, that was how I gradually built up this collection of uh, stray Dunsany. You know, like there's one story in Smart Set, which I found in the Smart Set anthology, not in the magazine itself. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, Joshi uh, really blew it open when he when he got got the key to the contents of Punch magazine. And, and that found a lot. At that point, at that, by the time he did that, I was editing Weird Tales. And you'll notice that Dunsany became a prolific writer for Weird Tales for a while there. In fact, one time he had he had six stories in one issue. And the reason for that was that our license was that our publication schedule had become sufficiently erratic that we were in danger that our license for those use of stories was going to run out. <laughs> so they're all very they're all very short stories. So I just crammed them all into one issue. That's great that we have them now. Yeah, well, it's great. Yeah, it's great that we have them. And and the, the further result was that Joshi uh, did a book for um, Hippocampus Press called the the ghost the ghosts in the corridor, which is an entire volume of uncollected Dunsany material. It seems that Dunsany was going to. Uh, this is something he must have discovered by going through the files at the castle. Dunsany had in 1956 assembled another collection. It was never sent out to publishers. And he got the contents of that plus other stories and put it together as a book for Hippocampus. And of course, it all it all dates back to um, when I was a kid, maybe in high school, uh, mm -hmm. maybe about the ni ninth or tenth grade. 
I found a copy of A Dreamer's Tales in a local thrift shop for a dime. The Sydney Sime Illustrated edition mm -hmm. of For a Dime. It was actually relative. These books were not rare in those days. Uh, and, and I had to borrow a dime from my brother. <laughs> but, um, you know, but having, having spent a great deal of time in used bookstores, I rapidly found most of the other stuff. The one other book that I know people mention a lot of yours, especially in relation to Wolf, is the the Shattered Goddess and the Goddess stories. Yeah. I know I've read the the one book, The Shattered Goddess, but there are other stories too. I think there is a book called uh, Echoes of the Goddess. There is, there we go. yeah, all of which take place before the Shattered Goddess. It's a wild side press book, uh, trade paperback only. Has a recycled Stephen Fabian cover, <laughs> and it contains all all of the other stories, which oh, were. Great. Were, were published, all of which were written after The Shattered Goddess, but which, at least I think that, no, one of them was written before, but then the others were all written after. And they, most of them were published in the early 80s. One was even serialized, and it was an, is a novella, and was serialized in a, uh, in a now completely forgotten magazine called Fantasy Book <laughs> in the middle 80s. That's the goddess stories, though, I think more wolf fans won't know as much about it because it doesn't have wolf's blurb like the uh, mask of the sorcerer still does. Yeah, it's <laughs> well, they were written before I'd read very much wolf and they were written before wolf was seriously famous. Actually, well, he became famous about 1982. So I guess they, yeah, they do. They do coincide. They came out about the same time as the uh, book of the new sun did. But, you know, the influence, the influence is really not there. Right. Except maybe in the rewrites a little bit, because I, I frankly rewrote some of this material uh, for the book. And the book the book was originally supposed to be published by the Donning Company in the 80s. And then it wasn't in, in various, due to various delays, it wasn't published for, well, I'd have to look up when the date is, at least another 25 years. And it, and it was, it was, it was only published because for a brief period, I actually had, a, had on the combination of stuff I had on my computer, I had a had reliable OCR scanning. <laughs> so I could scan all the stories and then rewrote some of them anyway. But um, this, because the stories were written up to about 1985 or 86. They, they, they predate my having a personal computer. Yes. I will mention, I, I will mention that in 19, 1976, I, uh, I wrote a story, a science fiction story in which people a hundred years in the future are using typewriters. <laughs> you weren't alone in that, I don't think. I think loads of people were. Doing Can you you remember the period in which, uh, uh, whenever somebody brought a computer to a convention, it was this is great marvel, and the crowd would gather around, and and the very top pro writers like Silverberg and Pornell would get off in the corner and talk about their computers, and nobody else knew what they were talking about. <laughs> I remember uh, game cons that I'd go to when I was younger, where the people who had the very earliest laptops were, and and you could play chess on it or something like that, and. Yeah. Well, I can remember. Well, basically, just a portable, like portable Macintosh. I can remember Somtow Sukaritko was very proud of the fact that he'd gotten a very early Macintosh. Uh, he'd been managed to cross-program various things in a in music program, and he managed to make his computer fart, <laughs> which was in something apparently something of an accomplishment. But yeah, you know, we 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 when I was certainly when I was in college, no one ever imagined that. Well, at least I didn't that there would be personal computers. That, that individuals would actually own these. Now, a computer was something you took. You took a box of uh, you know punch cards and you you sort of handed it over the counter to the high priest. You took it off and did mm -hmm. mysterious things mm -hmm. with it and came back with your results. 
and the computer was the size of a refrigerator at least. Yeah, that's what my, my dad actually did, that he was a computer programmer back when the computer would be an entire floor of a building, and he was or, the punch card guy. Yeah. Could be, it could be the entire building. I, I once heard mm-hmm. Jerry Pornell describe, when he was young, he, he, he hitchhiked across the country to see the, the I think it would have been the ENIAC 1, the, the big mm-hmm. the big computer that the university yeah and, and University of Pennsylvania probably we're probably talking about like 1948 and he said it was it was the size of a barn and it covered the whole inside of a building and there were walkways all the way up the walls and graduate students pushing uh, shopping carts full of light bulbs because it had you know <laughs> millions of light bulbs. And therefore, at any given time, some of those light bulbs were burning out. So these guys were just walking around on these catwalks, endlessly changing bulbs. <laughs> High tech at its finest. Yes, that uh, computer probably had less uh, computing power than your watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I still remember learning a program on an Apple IIc when I was younger. And now been thinking that that giant heavy beast oh, was hey was i had a, my, the first thing yeah. i had was a franklin 1200 which is an apple 2 plus clone mm-hmm. yeah. at 64k yeah. of memory but you know once you got a got a computer that could um, produce handle a book length manuscript you had a modern word processor yep i remember one of the first times i figured out how to get one running because i the first word processor i had would only save single pages at a time <laughs> each file was its own page and then when i we upgraded to another one, you, you usually put a link command at the bottom i think that's uh, probably what it was i don't remember yet, but yeah, yeah well, no, well basically well, as soon as i got to, i graduated about 1985 graduated to the apple gs uh that once my various friends of mine souped it up we actually had as much as four megs of memory wow and um the four megs of memory was enough to you could handle it all went on the desktop because the computer didn't need them. It was actually designed <laughs> to run on like 120K and you had just thrown four megs at it. So it had an enormous desktop and it was well programmed enough that it would just, if you add more memory, it would just take it and use it. You could put it, you could handle a, a uh, novel length manuscript on that. That's great. And of course, if you tried to run the spell check, you'd probably crash it. But hey, there was there was a time when any professional writer could get all the equipment they needed for about five dollars in a thrift shop because you, you would go buy a used typewriter a used manual you don't buy buy electrics because the motors are going to give out <laughs> get yourself a good solid used manual and you'd, you'd spend about a half an hour checking every possible function because it was not possible to repair it and then you can use because you know basically taking it to a shop to have something repaired was not worth it you right. if, if it broke you you chuck it out and you go to the thrift your, your, your church rummage sale and you buy another one <laughs> And so you could buy a, t- a perfectly good typewriter for about five bucks. And, th- and really, that was all you needed. And, and then, they, well, the great the great technological boon was the photocopier. And suddenly manuscripts survive, yeah. Well, at that point, the, at that point, the, uh, the subject or the object of, of, of producing a manuscript was to produce something which could be photocopied. Not, you don't, not necessarily something to be submitted directly. You submitted the photocopy. And uh, therefore, cut and paste, literal cut and paste with a pair of scissors was quite possible. Yeah. And you could uh, you could make a correction by by pasting something over, you know, a word, and wouldn't have to retype everything, just Xerox the result. 
Copiers are more sensitive than that. We I remember George said this had a copier where you could you could uh, adjust the density very very slightly by sliding a little bar. It's much more sensitive than a modern copier, you know, which have digital adjustments for the density. Mm-hmm. And you can you could do hairline adjustments, and so you'd you'd push it right down to the point where the cut lines disappear. Yeah, <laughs> and you can produce a very clean manuscript. This makes me think of Chip Delaney told a story not too long ago, and I I knew he'd always talked about having lost a couple manuscripts, but um, but yeah, just thinking about the need for copiers and how much making a copy can affect somebody's life. <laughs> you know, so, well, uh, you realize how much uh, what. Uh, well, DeCamp was a comment, made the comment that co- the invention of the copier made the anthologist's job vastly easier. Mm. You know how you, you yeah. know how you put together an anthology in 1950? This is pretty horrifying. Physically find the journals. What you actually had to do is you had to find two copies of the aforesaid journal, and you had to be ready to destroy them. Uh, because what you had to do, what they wanted you to do, they wanted you to cut out the page and paste it on a piece of type of page, you know, like. You you get you know the pulp magazine or something. Yeah. You cut out the pages and you paste them on sheets of typing paper so that there'd be room around the edges for copy editing and so on. Which of course means you need two copies because you're pasting one page down and then yeah the other verse over that on the next one and, and so on. Well, yeah, sure. I'm going to cut up two copies of the first issue of Weird Tales. You know, <laughs> it was expensive even then. Uh, the photocopier made that made life much easier your other your other alternative was you'd have to retype it anyway we're probably well off the subject of gene wolf by now (laughs) (laughs) are any other anecdotes about wolf that i mean i'm sure you ran into him in cons many times i ran into him at cons many times just i remember he was generally you know just very friendly and uh accessible um i i was told he had a temper and could be difficult but i never saw that Mm mm-hmm uh, he was always very, very friendly and accessible to me. I know he did admire, he admired the, uh, to become a sorcerer, the short version of mm-hmm. Master of the Sorcerer, which he described as, quote, one hell of a story, unquote. And he felt it should be published by Tor. I understand that David Hartwell wanted to publish it by from Tor, but it was apparently overruled. Mm. And David made the most extraordinary uh, offer to me, which was that he... Uh, he offered to publish it by himself as a Dragon Press book. You know, remember he had published uh, Philip K. Dick's Confessions of a Crap Artist that way. Mm-hmm. And he published a couple books by Delaney. But he actually offered to publish The Master of the Sorcerer as a Dragon Press book. But then at that point, uh, the, the book club, the the American book club had acquired the rights of, you had to do, to, to, to basically to do the, uh, the British paperback. Uh-huh. You know, remember this. This began life as a British paperback, and but but as soon as the American Book Club had it, David, of course, withdrew his offer quite sensibly, because the book club was going to just plaster it all over the place. Yeah. Well, they didn't really plaster it all over the place, but <laughs> I can tell you they sold out. That's good. That's good. I don't know how many they printed, but they called me up one day, and said, "We're about to to remainder the Shattered Goddess. How many do you want?" And I asked them how many they got, and they said they had fifteen hundred. Oh wow. Well, that's too much. And they were, they were offering to them to me at a buck and a half a copy. I took 500. I don't know what happened to the others. Hmm. But I asked them if they had any Mask of the Sorcerer, and they said no, it had sold out. But uh, that was about 
the you know the book club never never came back to me for anything else and i was just as it was just as well that when the many many crates of showed up at my house my wife wasn't home <laughs> uh, so i could smuggle them into the garage w without smothering us well i bought a gene wolf story once uh, george said what always made a made a, a tradition every time he started a new magazine he'd buy a gene wolf story <laughs> so um I think they, they see the last story he bought for Asimov's was a Gene Wolfe story. The first story he bought for Amazing was a Gene Wolfe story. And the first stories we bought for Weird Tales were Gene Wolfe stories. But I got to buy a Gene Wolfe story for well, the title, which you, you will have to look up to make it sound articulate. Um, it's the one that's in uh, Full Moon City, you know, the, the urban werewolf anthology. My buddy actually remembers where everything is published. He's got a much better... It's about a guy in a confessional who you think is a child molester and he's confessing to being a werewolf. Uh, well, anyway, so I bought that. Uh, but we nearly lost it because the idiot publishers wanted to censor it. Really? The child abuse part? Well, basically the line, no, I didn't touch her there. Now, frankly, I was I was on Wolf's side. And the, the, the publisher in general, uh, I think, was pretty clueless. Um, they... Uh, well, to give you an idea, there's a story of mine in that volume called Kvetula's Daughter, which is about, you know, a family of vampires who meet a werewolf. So it was an urban werewolf story. But at one point, they've got a, they've got a you know, a, a minion who is, you know, hunchback and drooling and eating bugs and so on. And, and they're saying, he's just like that nice Mr. Renfield we met. <laughs> and the copy editor wrote in the margin, why is this person eating bugs? I don't understand this. In a vampire, a story with vampires, come yeah. on. Yeah. They're really clearly not qualified. And what, what only had to happen was, first of all, Marty Greenberg saved the day. Because Marty Greenberg was the 800-pound gorilla that could tell them, you know, if you screw this up, we'll just take the book elsewhere. They wanted to rewrite Peter Beagle, too, you know. Uh and whereas I, I didn't have that kind of clout, I couldn't have done that. But Marty saved the day, which is one reason why his, you know, we actually share the byline on that one, even though I was the one who actually bought the stories. Uh, but anyway. Um, innocent was the name of the story, by the way. Innocent, yeah. We, we have to, needless to say, we did not allow them to cut a line out of the Gene Wolfe story. And John Helfers, Marty's assistant and I, divided the book up between us and had to deep proofread it. <laughs> and then we got a pretty decent we got a decent text in print, but we, we had to pretty much undo what the various idiots had done mm. um, and, and thus saved the Gene Wolf. So yeah, basically, Gene certainly had, had a sense of integrity. He would not have allowed somebody to mess with his text like that. And I, I can only sympathize. That does. I've asked other people who've edited the Wolf before. And one thing I always want to know is, did you fully understand the story when you bought it? That one, yes, I was certainly that. That was not difficult. Uh, I think I think he even made a comment in a letter somewhere. Well, Daryl probably won't understand this, because <laughs> um, I think Swanwick said one time that he had talked to uh, Desois about the gardener Desois about it, and he was like, "No, we just we we if Wolf offers it to us, we print it." <laughs> well, that's a very difficult editorial decision. Yeah, yeah. I've been in that position. Sometimes you have to take a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. You have to basically take the leap that you don't quite understand this, but your readers will. Mm. Uh, the other writer you have to do that with is Thomas Ligotti. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and um, and you you know usually you're right <laughs> to do it. <laughs> to basically take that leap of faith. Um, 
there's another, well, there's another deep dark secret I can tell you about magazine editing, <clears throat> which enables you to do this, which is that uh, you can get away with anything in 10 pages. <laughs> yeah, if it's short. If it's short and the readers don't like it, it isn't really going to do much damage. They'll forgive you. It's yeah. just, well, what you do, and this is, this is something actually I frankly learned from Farnsworth Wright, uh, who was always hesitant about, he, he was always afraid that, he, I think he was much too timid actually, but he was always afraid that his readers weren't going to understand the more artistic stuff. Mm -hmm. And maybe he was right that they wouldn't. But what he would always do is what you what you do in a case like that is you front load the magazine the issue with a C. Barry Quinn story or an Otis Edelbert Kleins or something you know <laughs> easy accessible and trashy that you know is going to be popular, and then you snick you have the the difficult artistic story you still put that in the back somewhere, and if it's only like ten pages long you will get away with it, hmm. and they will still like the magazine and come back and buy more whether they like that story or not. It's just if you had a novella that dominated the whole issue and most yeah. people didn't understand yeah. it, you know, uh, that'd be another issue, uh, another matter entirely. And then years later, people will come looking for that one for the uh, for yeah, the Yeah, I would. But, but basically, certainly in any experience I ever had with, with buying Gene Wolfe stories, they're always quite short. And usually most of his stories are, are well, there are, I admit there are some that I don't understand. Oh, there are plenty I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the long, long one that I don't understand to this day is Alien Stones. Mm, mm -hmm. I've never been able to make sense out of that one. but uh, And there are some shorter ones that I don't really get, like the Solar Labyrinth, which Gene seems to be very proud of, but I don't really get that one. But most of most of his short stories are very lucid. Um, this is one, one reason that other writers admire him so much, because the, the, the level of craft there is... Is, is more than most of us can achieve. This, this, this comes back to why if, if, if you uh, steal from Gene Wolfe or somebody like that, and, and the result is only half as good as him, it's still something of an accomplishment and probably better than anything else you've ever done. <laughs> What's something else that you might lead people towards of yours? Anything new or, or recent? Or... Well, the most recent thing is that two-volume set of uh, the, the career retrospective, mm -hmm. Mystery of the Faceless King and The Last Heretic, uh, although one of the stories in there is was actually written 50 years ago, which makes me feel old. Um, <laughs> and um, other recent collection that I would point people to is um, is Awaiting Strange Gods, which are sort of mostly sort of folksy Lovecraftian stories without any attempt to imitate Lovecraft. Hmm. Um, I'm basically doing with him what I did with Dunsany, which is once I've absorbed the influence, uh, you know, starting to do write my own stories in them. And there is another such volume going to come out from Hippocampus Press probably in about March of 23. Does it have a title yet? Yes, it's called The, it's called the Children of Chorazin. C-H-O-R-A-Z-I-N. Chorazin. Well, if you're an M.R. James fan, you know this, you know this name. Remember, it's where Count Magnus made the, took the Black Pilgrimage? Oh, yeah, I do remember that story. That, you know, basically, the original Chorazin is, is in the Middle East, and it's supposedly where the Antichrist will be born. My Chorazin is in upstate Pennsylvania. <laughs> a mid-Atlantic. Yeah, mid Mid-Atlantic Antichrist. Well, no, it's, it's, it's basically, it's in that black part, blank part of the map on Pennsylvania. You go up go up to the Poconos, up a little past Scranton, turn left, and there's nothing there. <laughs> uh, that's that's where, they, they you know, the, the town's full of, you know, strange cult worshippers are and that kind of stuff, you know. That's where we hide them. <laughs> uh, and, um, well, I'll mention that in the, the next issue of 
Penumbra magazine, which is a journal that comes out from Hippocampus Press, edited by S.T. Joshi, I set a record in that I have a story, an essay, and a poem all in the same issue. <laughs> Wonderful. First person is it to the do Schweitzer that. issue? Is that what it is? No, not particularly, that. but <laughs> I do have a, a short story, which is also about rural Pennsylvania weirdness and imaginary parts of Pennsylvania. And the uh, article is about a woman named Violet Sturgis Crosby, who um, was a budding writer who died at the age of 19, but it so happened that she, she corresponded with Lord Dunsany. Ten oh. years after, or twenty years after her death, uh, her family published a uh, a book of her of her work, which has like thirty pages of Duns has several pa many pages of Dunsany correspondence in it. Oh, and so I wrote wrote an article article about this, you know, largely to tell the world what this is and what I found. You know, it's a, it's a short article, but it's the kind of thing that will uh, you know make excellent fodder for my next essay collection. Yeah, I would 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 say about these kind of articles i'm not really a scholar i'm more of a popularizer but that's a good thing to be i mean i think my stylistic model or my for this kind of writing is michael durda you know his work oh yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's i mean it's still it's infected by scholarship he writes wonderful books about books yeah yeah you know, he's a columnist in the washington post he writes wonderful books about books you know things like bound to please and classics for pleasure and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. that's good i wish we had more people like that yeah yeah i wish we had you know he, he's, he's an appreciate what he really is is an appreciator he yeah. he describes yeah. he explores books and explains why you should read them and the, you know i try to do that um you know i don't have the uh, let's say sg joshi can do a profound analysis on the basis of you know ph philosophy that he's formally trained in well i'm not formally trained in it so I, I just report back on what I've read. Okay, Michael Durda was very amused when I told him that his books made excellent bathroom reading. Because <laughs> they do. Yeah, no, I, I totally you, know. You open, open them at random, read a short essay or two. And you know, exactly. Right? So as I said, I've always always liked yeah. your fiction, but I've probably just because I my day job is more on that scholarly side, I've always enjoyed your your nonfiction and your, your writing about writing just because it's just, like I said, insightful about people I love. So, well, I appreciate your appreciation. Well, good. Well then, um, Daryl, thank you so much for your time and for the stories and I appreciate it. And I'm definitely going to be encouraging people to go buy that, your copies of pathways to Elfland and your other fiction, especially the sorcerer book. Just about everything. Of my, really just about everything of mine that's worth reading is in print. <laughs> I, I had a very unusual I've had a very unusual career in that way. Uh, it, it just sort of a very low boil, you know, like We're All Legends has been in print. It, it was published in 1981. It's still in print. That's great, though. I mean, yeah, and the Shattered Goddess is, well, the Shattered Goddess is actually in print from Wildside Press, although I'm I'm selling uh, used uh, book club editions. <laughs> and, and if I ever run out of those, I have a, I have a box of the uh, British paperback. I ended up getting a little overinvested in that one. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I'll definitely send links to your, or put links to your eBay up there. And then if people okay. want something, I'll get in touch with you. So that way, Amazon All doesn't right. have to get its cut. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I can see we're thinking about the same things. I can see your expression when the phone rings. We both know. There's something happening here 
Well, there's no use in dancing around the subject of who gets worse when it's treated with neglect. Well, don't turn around. There's nothing here to fear. You can talk to me. cleaned up so I can make us sound better <laughs> and all that kind of thing afterwards. So You might be able to make us articulate. Chip Delaney has a wonderful line about, but he said editing uh, transcripts of your speech is the only time you ever get in life to be truly articulate. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And that's, that's absolutely what we, uh, um, somebody better get that. Don't worry. This is also, like I said, the beauty of okay. this stuff is editing. <laughs> we can always there was a time she's one I tried after I read Michael Swanwick's little um, biography of her and I did try to read a couple of the other novels of hers and they were they were fine but I just there's something about I don't know it's my genre geekness or whatever but London um, the Miss is she, she well she's like Bram Stoker she may have written in other books but she's a one book author yeah yeah Swanwick made a big deal of her poem of the the one long um, yeah yeah, he did. Modernist poem. said. I mean, you said it, you know, rivaled Eliot's Wasteland. And, I, 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 I'm not totally convinced of that myself, but. Yeah. Oh, well. I've been curious, but I didn't finish the poem, so I, I can't, we can't pass judgment well, yet. One, one, one wonders <laughs> what would have happened if H.P. Lovecraft had ever read it. <laughs> have you ever read, have you ever read Lovecraft's uh, uh, parody of the Wasteland? Uh, yes, actually. I did a, I did a whole, there's a different podcast I do, but I did a whole episode on his Christmas poetry of all things oh my. and, and read a bunch of stuff about, um, read that in the process Yeah, a bunch of his poetry. Yeah. It's, it was actually quite good. <laughs> quite funny. I thought so. It's very funny. He's very yeah. funny. He, he was actually a very funny guy, but that's uh, another subject. Oh shoot. Uh, what's the more, uh, the genre that is just sort of like random adventures one after the other. Which is a word I use. Thank you, picaresque. Picaresque. 